Welcome to episode 19 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J., and I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's topic is another installment of our Publishing 201 series. Today we'll be covering subrights. Yeah, subsidiary rights today. Yeah, all the all the stuff most people don't think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people forget that subrights are a thing um, that mm-hmm. are, can or cannot be included in deals. So this is more Kelly's wheelhouse than mine. And just to let you guys know, this is also our second time recording this episode because technology <laughs> hates us. Yeah. And my computer was being a butt. So this is take two, yet again, mm-hmm. of another podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, we've been plagued with uh, technical difficulties lately, although hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we'll have um, fixed our iTunes feed issue. So Yes, um, or if not, at the very end of this episode, we'll give you tips on how to basically unsubscribe and resubscribe to our feed that you'll be getting the updates to your phone, as you should be doing if you're subscribed to us via iTunes. But before we get carried away, why don't we just go ahead and start with the subrights? Yeah. Um, Kelly, why don't you define subrights for us? Sure. Um, A subsidiary right is the right to produce or publish a product in different formats based on the original material. So your primary rights granted in a publishing deal are, you know, print rights and ebook. And then a subsidiary right or a subright is anything else, you know, beyond that. So the most common ones, you know, audio, translation, TV or film rights, dramatic stage play, you know, on and on. Anything that you can think of that's kind of a derivative product of that original work is a subsidiary right. Yes, a derivative product of the intellectual property. So, you know, if, you know, as we mentioned those before, like graphic novels, but even things like video games and amusement parks, anything that takes your characters, the world, or whatever that belongs to you, your intellectual property, they can be spun out in all sorts of different forms, and those are all called subrights. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the, the ones we mentioned are pretty big, but there are others that kind of come up here and there in, in sort of more specialized situations. Um, I think Kelly had listed things like library binding... Mm-hmm. Abridgement. Yep. Book club rights. Book club is like the easiest way to to explain it is if you remember the scholastic book fairs when you were a kid, you'd get those little magazines of books and then you could order them. Um, that's a book club, but they have book clubs for everything. So there's mystery book of the month club or gardening book of the month club or whatever. Um, those are what book clubs are. Uh, anthologies, if they were going to include your work in a larger anthology. Um, large print is a subright, so having a special edition of the book in large print. Um, there are all kinds of subrights, and subrights in general are kind of um, split into two categories, which are kind of primary subrights and secondary subrights. 
primary subrights are the really big ones, the ones that are going to be the most lucrative, um, you know, the, kind of the ones that are those big products that everyone thinks of, you know, the audiobooks, the translations, the film rights. Um, and then secondary rights are, you know, those smaller, lesser ones that are maybe less lucrative, um, less, you know, important. And so when your agent is negotiating your publishing contract, um, there will be a lot of negotiation over subrights. Who is going to um, keep which rights, which rights will be granted, and so on and so forth. So before we kind of break these subrights down, the definitions of some of the subrights you'll see in a standard publishing contract, let's talk about how the author makes money via subrights. Uh-huh. So we did mention that when you make a sale to traditional publishers, you can negotiate the subrights. Now, there are basically two ways to go about it. You can either give your subrights to the publishing house or you can keep the subrights to sell individually. Uh-huh. So Kelly, why don't you take the when you keep your subrights and selling them individually? How how that works? You know what the monetary structure might be, because uh-huh. uh, I know you've had experience in both subrights and foreign rights departments at agencies. So, uh-huh. yeah. So when you keep subrights for yourself in your contract, that's called retaining the rights. So the author retains the rights or or reserves the rights for themselves. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why you might want to do that. Um, and the way that it works essentially is you reserve rights for yourself if you, most often if you have an agency that has a robust rights department. So if your agency is set up and have a really vibrant foreign rights department where they have co-agents in foreign countries and they're doing a lot of foreign sales and they're doing a lot of audiobook sales and things like that, um, if your agency has a thriving rights department, then most likely your agent is going to push in negotiations for you to retain more subrights. Um Not all agencies have rights departments. Um, Some do, some don't. Um, It it is not a sign of a good or bad agency whether or not they have a rights department. You know, there's a lot of really excellent small boutique agencies that don't have a rights department that are still perfectly legitimate, wonderful, experienced professional agents there. Um, Subrights, selling them is a, a whole separate animal from, you know, negotiating and selling domestic rights. So you really do need a separate team to do that that's dedicated and focused solely on um, subrights. If your agency has that rights department and you retain those rights, the way that it works is that the agency, in the case of foreign rights in particular, will have various co-agents in different territories or different countries. Um, They will, you know, your agent will provide the material, your manuscript, you know, um, information about your book, their pitch to their co-agents in various territories in foreign countries. And those co-agents have established 
relationships with foreign publishers in those territories. And so then the co-agent goes out and does the work, you know, of an agent. It pitches the book to various foreign editors um, and makes the sale. So if a sale is made, let's sell, let's say you sell German rights to your um, book, you've retained the rights and, you know, through your agent, um, you sell German rights. The German publisher would pay the advance, the co-agent in the foreign country gets their commission, usually a total commission for a um, foreign sale is 20%, so 10% goes to the co-agent, then 10% goes to your your agent who's representing you, and then the remainder of that advance goes directly to you. So retaining subrights is advantageous for the author because you are getting a larger cut of the money than you would if your publisher was involved. Because, I guess, JJ, how does it work if you grant your rights to the publisher and the publisher makes the sale? So it really depends. I mean, it really comes down to a difference in how you get your money. So if you retain your subrights, for example, for the, the example we use was foreign, if you retain foreign translation, you get the money directly minus the commission from your co-agent and agent. So, if, for example, say you uh, we'll use that German publisher. You sold your title to that German publisher for ten thousand uh, dollars. We're just going to simplify it. Everything's going to be in U.S. dollars, you guys. So, anyway, so you sell it for. <laughs> yeah, we won't go into taxes or anything this time. No. But, uh, <laughs> Um, but you know, you sell for $10,000 and so 20% of that would be $2,000 and you know, and a thousand dollars goes to the co-agent in Germany, a thousand dollars goes to your agent in the United States and the remaining $8,000 comes directly to you. So that's what happens when you retain sub rights and you sell them kind of basically what is kind of considered on your own, even though an agent is doing it for you, basically mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, the author is doing it. On the other hand, if, for example, your agency does not have a subrights department or your your U.S. publisher makes a really strong case, you know, if they have really strong subrights department, and most of the big five do, they do have uh -huh. pretty decent subrights departments, as they should, um, you know, at this point, you can actually negotiate for more money, you know, you know, for example, the publisher may say, oh, here we want, here's $10,000 for you know, world rights. And that would mean all foreign territories. They would, they would have, you know, foreign rights. Um, and then, but your agent say, if they're, your agent has a big sub rights department, they may just say, no, we're only offering North American. Um, and depending on how much the publisher wants those rights and how much, if they, th if they think they can sell them better, you know, there's a kind of complex negotiation going on here, but the publisher may come back and say, okay, we'll offer you $15,000, um, but we still want to retain world rights. And you can kind of go back and forth on the number of sub rights that you give up to the publisher. But let's say, for example, that you sold, you know, world English rights or not world English, well, you sold world rights to your publisher that means that the publisher now goes and sells those subrights for you. Now, in your contract will be listed out splits. You know, so any profit that the publisher makes or any sale, any licensing or commission that they do, you get a percentage of that sale. So generally for foreign, it's 
the publisher gets 50%, you get 50%. Now, in this scenario, let's say you took $15,000 and gave them world rights, and they go to that German publisher, and again, they sell that, you know, you're entitled to them for, again, $10,000. In this case, because the split is 50-50, you know, $5,000 goes to the publisher and $5,000 goes to you, which is less than that $8,000 you would have made if you'd kept the rights Mm -hmm. for the exact same sale. However, the difference here is that now you have $5,000. What happens in this case in the publishers, the publisher actually doesn't cut you a check for this sale. What it does is it goes against your advance. Mm -hmm. So they paid you $15,000 for world rights and they sold $10,000, you know, made a a sale of $10,000 to Germany of which you made $5,000. They will apply that $5,000 to your, against your $15,000 advance, meaning now you only need to sell $10,000 worth of books once your book is published. Now Mm -hmm. I'll, spell out all the math again in in the show notes so it's not quite so confusing but basically <laughs> if you retain your sub rights it's basically you get money probably more money up front immediately whereas mm-hmm. if you you know grant the sub rights to your publisher the it's likely that you'll earn your advance out sooner so th- mm-hmm. that's kind of essentially what the trade off comes down to Right. And remember, again, earning out your advance, something that we talked about in the money episode of the podcast, is a really important thing to do. You want to earn out um, that money. So although you won't necessarily be getting a $5,000 check, it's going to be applied against your advance. That's still ultimately a good thing because it will bring you closer to earning out, which will get you closer to earning royalties and will ensure that the publisher regards you as a good investment going forward. Yeah, and there are some books that I know other editors have acquired and when I was working in the Big Five that they had the world rights for and that made the advance several times over abroad. Mm-hmm. So the, before the book was even published in the U.S., the author was making royalties mm-hmm. and lots of them. You know, they'd basically already, already made their advance back before their book even sold. So there's, you know pros and cons to this. And this is mm-hmm. something you should, again, discuss with your agent. You should sit down and, you know, and, and discuss, you know, do we want a higher advance from the publisher and grant them more rights? Or do you think we should keep these rights if you can sell them? Yada, yada, yada. Um, it will be different from book to book. So, you know, neither Kelly nor I would be able to advise, you know, do this in every situation mm-hmm. because we... It just will depend. <laughs> yeah, it completely depends. And another thing, too, I wanted to mention about granting rights to the publisher. So if you grant those rights to the publisher, um, they are the publishers to do with as they will. And so at that point, you will not be included in any of the publisher's planning about how to exploit those rights. If a, if a publisher uses a right, um, it's called exploiting them. It's kind of a weird word for it, but that's what it's called. Um, But the author will have no role in that process whatsoever. So you won't have a say which German publisher it goes to, or if the, you know, if they're making an audio book or a, you know, or any other of the sub rights that you grant, you won't be involved in that process. From the time that you grant the rights to the publisher, 
they're the publishers to do with as they will. They're the sole person who needs to determine how they're exploited. You won't sign any contracts. Any contracts would be between the publisher and a third-party licensor. Um, so really, you know, the publisher will tell you about it when it's happened. They'll say, hey, we made a foreign sale, or hey, you're going to have an audiobook. Um, and then you'll get your royalty statement, you know, that will show um, the amount of money that you earned on those sales. But that will kind of be it. And obviously... You know, if you have an agent, um, you know, selling your audiobook rights or your film rights, you know, you might be a little bit more involved in that process um, than you would if the publisher was doing it. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about subrights in terms of whether or not you should grant them or exploit them, um, again, it's it's always positive for an author to retain subrights if there is a reasonable means of exploiting them. You know, if you have an agency with a rights department, then, you know, any subrights that you sell, the agency has a better chance of um, selling on your behalf. But if your agency doesn't have a rights department, or if you don't have an agent and you are negotiating um, a contract on your own, you want to think about whether or not it's really worth it to retain your subrights if you don't have the ability to do anything with them. It doesn't do you much good, for example, to keep your audiobook rights or your translation rights if you don't have any personal connections with foreign publishers or with audiobook publishers. If if you're just holding on to the rights and you're not able to do anything with them, well, then in that case, you're losing out on money, too, uh, because they're just sitting there and no one's using them. And not only are you losing out on money, but, you know, I, I always thought that... So when I first started working in publishing, um, my first job ever was working for a director of subrights, and she played... Um, she handled most of the audiobooks sales for the agency that I worked for. And so I was really heavily involved in audiobook sales. And it was so cool to me to like get those boxes shipped in and to open them up and to see the audiobook. And I am not a published author, but I imagine that one of the most exciting things about being an author after, you know, your initial signing of your contract and getting your, um, your, you know, proof pages and your galleys and your first bound, you know, book copies of your book are seeing all those licensed products, you know, getting your two copies of the Japanese translation of your title that come in or getting to see your book made into an audiobook. You know, that seems to me anyway, like a really exciting um, part about being an author. And if you just retain those rights with no plans or ability to exploit them, then those things are never going to happen. So in some cases, granting them to your publisher really is, you know, the best thing that you can do. On the flip side. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a flip side. There's always going to be a flip side, you guys. Everything about this business is, it depends. <laughs> but on the flip side, if you do grant these rights to your publisher and your publisher just sits on them, yeah. That doesn't do you any good either. And there are cases where the stuff like this has happened, where someone's been granted, you know, the publisher's been granted most of the subrights, and the publisher doesn't really do anything with them. Uh-huh. In some contracts, and a lot of the, the sort of agencies will have this in their boilerplate, there's a mm-hmm. time limit. 
Yep, unexploited rights. Contract. Yep, revert, revert back. back. It's usually two years. You can negotiate that window down, but if they haven't really done anything with your book in, we'll say, 18 months to 20, 18 to 24 months, then those rights will revert to you. It, it, I would advise you, as Kelly has said many times before, to read your contracts. Mm-hmm. Look for that language there because it should be there. And if it isn't there, then you should talk to your agent to ha- request to have that language put in. Because you don't yeah. want to grant these rights to your publisher in perpetuity. I, I would say I, I would say that that's something you should add in. I think I think most contracts, from a publisher's perspective, I think most contracts will state that you know the subrights um, are granted for as long as the rights to the work are granted, and that when you know the contract terminates and the rights revert to you, then the subrights go with that. But I, I don't think that most publishers are generous enough to to preemptively revert unexploited yeah. rights back after a certain amount of time. So that's definitely something that you um, can and should ask for because it is not an unreasonable request, um, and is absolutely um, you know one of those one of those insider contract tips um, that can be really mm-hmm. helpful because I know a lot of times you know maybe you grant your part your publisher foreign rights and they're able to sell German and French and Japanese, but nothing else. And then the rest of the foreign rights are just sitting there doing nothing. If they revert after 18 months, then your agent can get in there and, and go to those other territories that have been left untapped, um, and, you know, make something happen for you. So yeah, that is an excellent tip. You should definitely, uh, keep an eye out for that in your contract. So I think that's, you know, the business decisions about whether to retain or whether to grant your subrights. So why don't we go into the most common subrights that you would see on the contract? So obviously we've discussed translation. That's actually mm-hmm. what we mean by foreign uh, translation. It's mm-hmm. a translation, right? Um, but there are others. We have mentioned audio, which specifically, generally, audio is a single reader reading the text of the book. Uh, because something like a radio play would mm-hmm. fall under dramatic rights. Uh, mm-hmm. So these are there. There are a couple there. So we have translation, audio, uh, dramatic. Um, yeah, merchandising, merchandising, and commercial. So this is a funny one. You see this one a lot, and it, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like m- merchandise. You know, a backpack with your book title on it. You know, or whatever. Anything you can think of. Um, merchandise in general. Uh, and it's a, one that we see a lot. And, you know, um, nine times out of 10, your book is not going to have merchandise. Um, I'm not privy to the contract details that JK Rowling has for Harry Potter, but I sure hope she kept her merchandising and commercial. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure they've reverted back to her. And the only reason I say that is because of Pottermore. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because before that, at least in the U.S., I'm pretty sure Scholastic had all that merchandise. Yeah, and there was a lot of merchandise. And there was a lot of Harry Potter merchandise. <laughs> and um, the same thing with the Hunger Games. Again, yep. published by Scholastic, there's a lot of Hunger Games merchandise. Mm-hmm. So, but and you know now. J.K. Rowling has Pottermore, so I'm imagining those have reverted back to her. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, most likely. Um, 
you know, so that's a, a funny one that, you know, people kind of look at and they're like, really? And, and you know, again, most books are not going to have big merchandising deals, but yours might. <laughs> um, yes. It's one that... Yeah, Merchant Commercial is one that agents like to keep just in case. Um, graphic novel is another one that's becoming more and more popular. When I started working in publishing 10 years ago, this one was not um, as much of a thing. But yeah. over recent years, uh, it's become not only more and more prominent, it's showing up in contracts more and more, but more and more agencies are retaining it. Um, it's a very lucrative subrate um, if you know a graphic novel is made of your work. Um, and we're starting to see it more and more. I know there was a Twilight graphic novel made. You know, I know that there's a lot of books lately that have been um, turned into graphic novels that didn't initially start out that way. So that's one. Yeah. Um, another big one is serial rights. Um, first mm -hmm. serial and second serial. Um, serial rights are essentially publishing excerpts of your book in... Um, a magazine or a newspaper or some kind of periodical. First serial is when an excerpt is printed before the book is actually published. And then second serial is um, an excerpt that's published in a periodical after the book has been released. Um, so and those are sometimes like promotion wise, like, you know, the first three chapters of the book, you know, here's mm -hmm. the cover reveal and the first three chapters of the book that would fall under first serial. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and after the, your book has come out and, you know, we'll say another periodical decides, you know, this book is now out. Here's the first three chapters. That would be second serial. So mm -hmm. that's just basically what those are for. Yeah. And so those are all really common. Those are kind of the primary subsidiary rights, I guess. Um, they're the ones that agents are most likely to want to retain. They're the most lucrative. They're the most likely, you know, to sort of happen. Um, secondary subrights are either less frequent or are less lucrative. So they're kind of the ones we mentioned before. There's library bound, abridgment, book club, anthology, large print. Um, those subrights that would be much more limited in quantity would bring in less money. Um, anything print related, so like abridgment and anthology and large print, all of those will almost always go to the publisher because they are like subsets of a printed book. You know, large print is your book being printed in a large font so that um, people that have, um, you know, trouble seeing clearly um, can read the book. Um, same thing with library bound, you know, that's a, that's a book that has a special binding to make it more durable so that it can stay in circulation longer in libraries, but it's still a book, you know? So those times, those types of rights typically go to the publisher, um, cause they're more closely, um, you know, tied to, you know, the print rights that you would have. There are some other rights that, um, we haven't mentioned that might show up, um, Theme park rights are sometimes a thing, <laughs> which, again, if you're J.K. Rowling, you know, I don't know who has her theme park rights, but uh, I think it might be Warner Brothers. I think she might. Uh, I think it is Warner Brothers. Yeah, I think yeah. she gave them to Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, you know, but again, like that's um, I'm sure she's making quite a lot of money off of Harry Potter World. It's not going to happen for all of us. But if you are one of those lucky people that gets. <laughs> Gets a theme park. Um, video games are another up-and-coming uh, subrate that we're starting to see more and more often. Um, 
And then this is another, this is another contract tip that I want you guys to pay attention to. Um, so something that you want to make sure is clearly defined in your contract. There are two things. The first thing is any right not explicitly granted herein is retained by the author. So that basically means that if we don't mention it explicitly, um, you know, to the publisher, if we don't grant it, list it out in the contract and have a split there, then that means that it belongs to the author. The other thing that goes hand in hand with that, the other language that you want to make sure is not in your contract is whether now known or hereafter devised. And whether now known <laughs> or hereafter devised basically means what the publisher is basically saying in that case is even if it hasn't been invented yet, we get the right to do it. And that sounds kind of crazy. Like when you hear it out loud, they're like, even, even if something hasn't been invented yet, the publisher is asserting their right, um, to the ownership of those rights. That happened with ebooks. Um, that was a very real thing that happened because you know, back when, you know, we can even go back 15 years, 20 years, when ebooks were not on anyone's radar, no one thought about them, they were not clearly defined in the contract as either a primary grant of rights or a subright. Um, they didn't exist, they weren't a thing. And then later on, when ebooks began to emerge, publishers started asserting claims that they had electronic rights and digital rights because there was language in the contracts about, you know, anything whether now known or hereafter devised. And of course, authors and agents were like, no, 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 no. This is crazy. You can't, you know, you can't have <laughs> ebook rights just because there was some generic language in your contract. Um, but it really did happen and it caused a lot of strife and issues and, um, you know, it was a huge thing and it happened before and I'm sure it will happen again. There will be some product or something that we cannot now conceive of um, that later on down the, the line will become a commodity and publishers will want to capitalize on that and assert that they have the right um, to license those rights due to language like that, whether now known or hereafter devised. So if you see that in your contract, you want to immediately request that it be deleted. Anything that is not explicitly granted to the publisher in the contract should be reserved for the author. Yeah, I mean, who knows what the technology is going to look like in the future, you know, and it's not listed in the contract now, but as it was, as Kelly mentioned with the case of the ebooks, it could be a thing in the future. And so you want to make sure that your bases are covered, that you retain the rights. You know, if it's not explicitly listed out in your contract, the, those retire, those rights still belong to you. Um, and, oh, there was one big one we mentioned, we didn't mention, which was TV and film. <laughs> yeah. Um, we forgot to mention that, which is kind of funny because so many, so many authors get asked, so are they making a movie of your book? You know, um, <laughs> and then the author might say, well, it's been optioned, but that doesn't actually mean that they're going to make anything of it. Yeah. The whole film adaptation thing is very different. Well, we'll just simplify it and say it's very, very different. But as you may guess, most publishing houses are not production houses. They don't produce films. Um, so what if or if you've retained the rights or whether or not you've granted them to the publisher, 
when a book gets adapted to film, you the rights to your book get optioned. Basically, that just means the studio rents your IP <laughs> for mm -hmm. a specific period of time. So they basically are leasing the idea to make a movie out of your book. And that option period is generally 18 months. Um, yeah. but so I think it's 18 months, but it can be longer or shorter depending obviously on the contract or whatever. And they'll pay you a bunch of money. And after that specific period of time, when the option is up, they either have to return that option to you or get their project greenlit. The, the different, so basically, you know, if a studio has the option to your book during that period of time, what they would, what they should be doing with the option in your book is, you know, getting writers attached, getting directors attached, possibly even getting an actor attached to your project. And then they would go around and pitch those to the studio heads and the studio heads would then consider this and decide I'm going to give you money and green light the project. That's how Hollywood works. It's very, very different. And yet kind of the same. <laughs> um, but you know, if, so if at the end of that option period, the studio has not greenlit your project, they can actually renew the option or let the option lapse back to you, at which point you can, you know, give that option to any other studio. So, you know, that's kind of how TV and film works. Now, a lot of agencies, if you retained TV and film, will have a film co-agent that functions pretty similarly to a foreign co-agent in, in a foreign territory. You have a specific person who is the liaison to Hollywood, who knows all the different producers and studio heads and will pitch your book to them. I'm not entirely sure how the monetary structure breaks down, but I believe it's somewhat similar to the, the foreign sales, which is 10 and 10. Um, so you, you know, the commission taken out of your check is a little bit higher. Now, if your publisher has been granted the film TV rights, this, this is something you may want to consider because a lot of the big five publishing houses have pretty deep connections to TV and film. For example, Hachette, which, um, in which little of which little Brown grand central, they're all a part of Hachette. Hachette is also a part of the same media corporation as Warner brothers. So if you grant TV and film to Hachette, you, you know, there may be a better chance of getting your book to somebody at Warner Brothers. The same thing if you sell your book to Disney Hyperion. If you sell your book to Disney Hyperion, obviously Disney Hyperion is part of Disney. And Harper is actually owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is also the man who owns Fox. So there's kind of these sort of, you know, you kind of weigh that as well, depending on how good your, your agency co-agent is, you know, exactly who has bought your book. Again, that's all stuff you should be discussing with your agent. But I will be completely honest, the vast majority of books don't get optioned. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and of those that get optioned, an even smaller fraction actually get made into movies. Yeah, it's very rare and and very fickle. You know, some authors have their work optioned over and over and over again, which is kind of great because you're getting constant checks. But there's no movie made to sabotage your work. Yeah, some people consider that the best 
possible scenario because you get the you get the consistent income, but then you don't risk having a terrible movie made <laughs> of of your work. So you know some people do consider that the the greatest option that you have. So, but yeah, I just yeah before we moved on to anything else, I, I did want to cover TV and film because that is sort of a glaring oversight on the subrights part on our end. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, any further thoughts? Any kind of last thoughts? Any kind of anything else that we might have forgotten or missed? Um, you know, I don't think there's too much else in terms of general. You know, again, you can get really specific, but it's hard to do that because, like JJ mentioned earlier, you can't really advise one way or another on something like this. It really, truly depends on your unique circumstances, on your book, what the market for your book is like, what publisher you're with, what agency you're with. You know, there's so many factors. Um, and so it's really difficult to pinpoint um, some targeted advice. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about splits, which is the percentage if you grant your subrights to your publisher, the split is, you know, the, the way that you're going to split the proceeds from those sales. Uh, we did mention that in general, um, splits are 50, 50 for most subrights. The exception is serial rights. Those, um, publishing the excerpts of your book in a periodical either before or after publication. Um, and serial rights are a higher split. So it's usually either 80, 20 or 90, 10 with the larger percentage going to the author and the smaller percentage going to the publisher. Um, Splits are somewhat negotiable sometimes. You know, sometimes you can do a 60-40 for a specific subright. Um, you know, again, in general, industry standard is 50-50, and, and whether or not you'd be able to negotiate anything higher is really dependent on your personal circumstances. Um, I think, you know, in general, the most important thing that you should be aware of is subrights exist, um, that it's... <laughs> You know, that they can be really beneficial to you and, um, you know, either help you earn out your advance much faster or bring you in more money directly. You should know, you know, what they are. You should know what you're retaining. You should make sure that you're not accidentally giving away stuff that hasn't even been invented yet. <laughs> this is another, <laughs> this is another plug for reading your contract, which is like my favorite. It's like my mantra, my favorite phrase. Um, but in general, I think, you know, that's really it. I think subrights are really fascinating. Of course, I have a really specific background in subrights. I've worked in audio. I've worked in foreign. Um, I've worked in permissions. So I've dealt a lot with subrights. Um, but I think, you know, they're really cool. They're really great. And they're really easy to overlook, which you shouldn't do. Basically, if you overlook them, it's like, you know, the change that you drop in the cushions of your couch. <laughs> this is money. This is potential money for you. So don't overlook your subrights. This is other ways to make money that don't just involve a traditional domestic sale. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's generally why we, we say pay attention to your subrights. Plus, I mean, nowadays, at least for me, I listen to so many audiobooks these days. I do have, this is not a plug, although if Audible wants to sponsor us, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna turn them down. Um, <laughs> I do have an Audible subscription because I do listen to a lot of audiobooks these days. Mm -hmm. I it is I think personally a different 
way to experience a story. You know, I experience stories differently when I read them as opposed to when I listen to them. I so you know, there's the the sort of prominence of the subrights may, you know, kind of come and go. So. You know, at some point in the future, it could be graphic novels. Maybe in the future, it's a trend that every book gets turned into a graphic novel, similar to the way audiobooks are sort of being made almost, you know, par for the course for every book that gets bought here. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, just just pay attention. Yeah. Um, Don't let that money slip through your fingers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is whether you grant the rights to your publisher or whether you retain them for yourself, um, even if there's a very diligent, um, well-connected, professional subrights department involved, whether it's your publishers or your agents, who is doing everything that they can um, to promote your work and to sell your work, um, it, it might not sell. I mean, particularly with translation rights, a lot of... Um, fiction is culturally specific and won't, uh, translate socially or culturally, um, Mm -hmm. in different places and, you know, different, um, places look for different things and, you know, different stories resonate with different people. And so, you know, even if you make the best choice for your rights, whether it's to grant them or retain them, it's, it's unpredictable. Like so many other parts of this business, um, (laughs) all you can kind of do, all you can really do is do your research and, you know, roll the dice and, and, you know, make the most informed, um, proactive decisions that you can. And then, you know, just hope that something goes your way. Um, there's always going to be that element of the unknown in publishing. Yes. All right, so we can move on to our next segments, which is, what have you been reading? What have I been reading? Um, so I just recently finished Bloodbound by Patricia Briggs, which is mm-hmm. the second book in the Mercy Thompson series, which is this urban fantasy sort of uh, series that I've been reading. Um, they are very fluffy. They're very light. They're very fun. Um, I love the protagonist. Uh, so that has been really excellent. Um, I've been enjoying those thoroughly. And then my many, many holds at the library have finally started to pay off. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have The Glass Sentence by S.E. Grove uh, that just I've heard really came good in. things about the series. Yeah. Um, I am really excited about it. Um, I have not started it yet. I actually am planning to start it this evening. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I've heard really great things. And then um, the other thing that just came in from the library is The Witches, which you started reading earlier this year. (laughs) I finally finished. Oh my god, I need to update my Goodreads page. (laughs) Goodreads status. I forgot that it was still under my story. I did finish it. Just to warn you guys, though, it is a... Warning you, Kelly, it is a brick of a book. It's like a thousand pages long. It's really long. Just, just saying it, it, it. It's not, for, at least for me, it was not a quick read. It was a very, yeah. very good read, though. Very, really, very good read. I'm really fascinated about it. I grew up in Massachusetts, in the suburbs of Boston, and I, I grew up in a town called Peabody, uh, not Peabody. Mm-hmm. It's Peabody. Um, 
which actually, you know, back in the day was a part of Salem. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time in Salem. I have friends and relatives that live in Salem. Um, you know, I get my, uh, tarot read every once in a while in Salem. It used to be like every six months, but I'm not home every six months anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so yeah, so I have spent quite a bit of time in Salem. Of course, um, I am, I wouldn't, you know, say well-versed in the Salem witch trials, but I certainly grew up knowing uh, a bit more about them than maybe your average American teenager, uh, just due to proximity. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I've always liked stories about the Salem witch trials, um, actually. So there is an author called Anne Rinaldi, and she had written a bunch of, I guess they're considered YA. She was sort of writing in the the time when YA wasn't quite so defined. So mm -hmm. she just sort of wrote children's books is kind of what it was. But she wrote all these historical children's books. Like she wrote books about the Boston Massacre about the legend of Tempe Wick. She also did one about the Salem Witch Trials called A Break with Charity that I really, really, really loved. And I've always had this fascination with the, the Salem Witch Trials myself. And I do, I, this book is really good, really well-researched. And it's also written in a very, I, I don't want to say florid necessarily, but it's it's written in, in it's not written in a dry academic way at all. Um, the writer, she won a Pulitzer for her biography of Cleopatra, actually. Um, but she writes in this really engaging, almost literary kind of way, um, about all the events that happened, but she's extremely meticulously detailed. That's why this book is so long and that's why this book took me so long to read. Um, but I do highly recommend The Witches as well. So I will second that one. Um, anything else, Kelly? No, that's pretty much it. What about you? Um, my reading has not been quite so lofty. <laughs> Let's see, what have I finished? Um, I finished the last book in the Immortal Heights trilogy, or, not sorry, the Elemental trilogy uh -huh. by Sherry Thomas. Um, I think that was, the first book was The Burning Sky, the second book is The Perilous Sea, and then this last book is The Immortal Heights. Um, so I, that was a fun, quick read. Uh, I also finished a book called The Accident Season by Maura Fowley-Doyle. This, this has sort of been on my radar for a while. It came out last year, kind of like I think late summer last year, and it has this really creepy cover. <laughs> and you know me, I like creepy anything. Um, <laughs> so I've been waiting to read it. It finally came through in the library. And it's... Um, it's, it's sort of a work of creepy magical realism. So if you guys like the works of Nova Rensuma, who I really mm. like, she wrote Imaginary Girls and The Walls Around Us um, and Seventeen and Gone. So it kind of reminds me of Nova Rensuma and also kind of reminds me of Bone Gap by Laura Ruby, which is um, that actually I think won the National Book Award or something. It, it won an award last year um, and it's also kind of creepy, unsettling work of magical realism. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I finished uh, The Girl from Everywhere by Heidi Heilig, uh, which was, which was you know, it's got time-traveling pirates, which was pretty fun. And I'm also reviewing that title for Disability and Kidlet. Um, but I, I really, I really liked that one too. And, oh, 
And the last one is I finished Tell the Wind and Fire by Sarah Reese Brennan. <laughs> <sighs> I cried. Reader, I cried. Sarah Reese Brennan's really good at that. Of all mm-hmm. the tears I've shed over each one of her books, I mean, she's got enough tears to keep her young forever. Um, but this one is a retelling <laughs> of... <laughs> yeah, just... I, I've, I, I think I've cried in every single one of her books. Um... Maybe not quite like the ugly sob levels of like Codename Verity or The Book Thief. Oh, don't mention that book to me. (laughs) (laughs) What, Codename Verity? Oh my God. I was like eight months pregnant when I read that book. I was just like a walking cannonball of hormones and I just (laughs) sobbed. (laughs) <laughs> well, I wasn't a walking cannonball of hormones I know, when I read it, and I, I, know. I still sobbed. <laughs> yeah, and, and you'll sob no matter what. It doesn't matter if you have a heart of stone, that book. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, so Sarah Reese Brennan, that's maybe a challenge if you want to make me sob as hard as Elizabeth Vine did in Codename Verity. But this one is a retelling. <laughs> this one's a retelling of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And I've always loved that book. I didn't actually always like Dickens, but I've always liked this particular book. Um, and I, she... If you've read A Tale of Two Cities, the way she's retold it is extremely clever. Um, so I thought I, it, it, it just came together extremely well, um, and it broke my heart, as the original book did. Like, I knew how it was going to end. Of course I knew how it was going to end. I'd read the original, and yet, at the same time, I kept <laughs> hoping that maybe it would be different. Maybe this would be different. Maybe... Nope. No. No. <laughs> Um, so yeah, those, those are my reads thus far. <laughs> yeah. What are you, are you, hmm? what's our next one? Is it, what are you working on or what did you, what's your non-media thing? I don't even know the order that we go in um, anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about what we're working on. Are we working on anything? Um, yes. So I am continuing to work on my young adult novel. It's going uh, pretty well, actually. I feel really good about it. Uh, but I have also accidentally stumbled into a side project, (laughs) uh, in terms of writing, (laughs) which is that, uh, my friend Mallory and I go on, um, semi-regular writing dates. Maybe at this point we're doing once or twice a month where we meet up in a coffee shop and we write. Um, sometimes we end up chatting more than we end up writing, but sometimes they're really productive. Um, and she and I met up. Uh, very recently for one of these writing dates. And it was one of those times when we were doing a little bit more chatting than we were writing. And she started talking about this idea that she had for a middle grade uh, fantasy novel that she wanted to have a co-author for, for various reasons. And so she was just talking out the project. She was in the very beginning idea stages of it. She basically had like one little snippet, um, of a character idea and she's talking about it and talking about it. And as she's talking, I was sort of sitting there going, Oh, I could do this. <laughs> I could, <laughs> I, I, I could get in on this. Um, and so I kind of jumped into the conversation and kind of gave her my ideas. And now we're kind of working on this thing together. So we've, um, passed some writing back and forth. Um, it's been really fun. 
I have no idea what will come of it. You know, I don't know if it's um, necessarily going to be one of my serious writing projects or not. But in the meantime, it's been um, a really nice way to take some breaks from my YA sometimes, um, which I am still working on predominantly. But, you know, when I get really stuck, I kind of have something else that I can go to for a little while and kind of replenish that uh, creativity. Um, So that's been really fun. What about you? Um, Well... I guess on the winter song front, I have started seeing covers, um, which I'm kind of really excited about. It's sort of the first step, I guess, in like realizing that your book is not just a thing that lives in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, like even after I sold the book and even after I worked on edits with my editor back and forth, it, it didn't, you know, it still felt like similar to me sharing it with my friends and never like thinking that this is a thing that will eventually be held by people because it has like a cover and everything. Um, we haven't finalized them yet, but, um, we've been, you know, going back and forth on, on some images, which is pretty exciting to look at. Um, so it's kind of starting to take shape, like a real (laughs) book shaped thing in my head, um, that will eventually be out in the world. Um, I'm still working on the Beauty and the Beast project. It's very slow going and I don't know if that's just because I'm still recalibrating. You know, I think I mentioned previously that I'm back on medication for my bipolar disorder and, you know, I I feel better and I, you know, I, I feel creative. I feel like my creative process is running again. Um, but every single time I open my computer to try and write, it's so slow <laughs> and it's you know and I, I know everyone, some some of you guys are probably yelling at me because someone you know and, and not everybody writes fast but I've always been kind of a, a feast or famine writer like I go long stretches of time without writing anything and then kind of write everything in a furious burst and that's not quite happening for for this Beauty and the Beast project. And like even my middle grade, which I think I mentioned previously that I'd sort of set aside to work on this, even then, before I set it aside, I got a lot of words out in a very short period of time. I'm always kind of, the words are not hard for me to to write, but this one is. And I don't know if necessarily that's the nature of the project itself, if it's a function of my bipolar disorder, me being in, in a depressed part of my bipolar disorder or just, I'm not quite sure what it is. So that's just frustrating. That's just a, a frustrating thing where I'm just like, but why are you not coming words? Words usually come. It's not a problem. Why are you not coming? That's kind of annoying. Um, but in, in addition to that, I'm also working on short fiction. Um, short fiction is a form that I don't know how to do. <laughs> Anything shorter than like 120,000 words, I don't know how to do it. Short stories, novellas, flash fiction, all of that. I think I really admire people who are able to tell a whole story in, you know, with an economy of words. I admire that. So I'm just practicing writing short fiction, you know, kind of flexing other writing skills for the lack of a better word. So that that's what I'm working on now. Nice. What uh, what mm-hmm. other media have you been consuming? I have a lot. Maybe I maybe we should start with you. <laughs> what have you been consuming, Kelly? <laughs> um, 
Well, I have been, uh, recently my husband and I went to see Newsies, the musical, uh, the Broadway tour that came to Minneapolis. Um, that was my Christmas gift. Uh, he gave me tickets to see that. I was a theater kid. I did a lot of musical theater growing up. Um, I entered college actually as a, an acting major, um, and then quickly realized that it was not, uh, quite for me. And so, uh, moved on to creative writing instead. Um, but theater was always, <laughs> theater was always a really big part of my life. Um, and he knows that. And so we try to, uh, go see some shows when we can, um, we are not yet season ticket holders, but that's something that I aspire to one day when I have tons of money to throw around. Um, he gave me tickets for Christmas, and uh, luckily he gave them to me by putting them inside the cover of the Newsies DVD. Because if he had, <laughs> if he had just, if he had just given me an envelope with tickets in it, I would have assumed they were Hamilton, and I would have died. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been so cruel. It would have been horrific. So cruel. Uh, but he didn't do that. He gave me the DVD of Newsies with the tickets tucked inside of it, which was uh, much preferable. So we went to see that. It was really wonderful. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And then other media that we've been consuming, um, he and I just started watching the new Michael Pollan a documentary that's on Netflix right now. It's four episodes. Uh, the documentary as a whole is called Cooked. It is based on his most recent book of the same name. Uh, and there's four parts, each about an hour long, um, focusing on a different area of cooking. So there is um, fire, which focuses mostly on barbecue. There is water, which focuses mostly on pot cooking, stews and curries. There is air, which focuses on uh, baking bread. And then we have not watched the last one yet, which is Earth. Um, and although I've read the book, I cannot exactly remember what Earth entails. I think it might be fermentation, if I'm remembering the book correctly. Mm. So in the book, he talks about um, sauerkraut and beer and also cheese making. Um, so I, I Hmm. could be getting that wrong. I could be mixing those up, but I'm pretty sure that's what the earth element is. Uh, so we have yet to watch that final installment. Um, but it's been really excellent. I love cooking. I love eating. I love, um, (laughs) you know, any food television, any reality cooking television competition. I am here for it. Uh, any food documentaries, I'm here for it. I read a lot of food memoirs and I collect a lot of cookbooks and I, you know, food and cooking is a very big, uh, part of my life. I cook a lot from scratch. I bake bread, uh, which is something that I actually learned to do when we were roommates. Um, yes, it was great because the apartment (laughs) smelled like baking bread. (laughs) Um, yeah. So we've been watching that, um, this week, which has been really, um, exciting and, um, interesting. And then I guess the only other other media that I've been consuming is, um, the recent, uh, developments in terms of Supreme court justices, um, and the nomination (laughs) that is now, um, available, um, really, really, really just seems like a West wing episode brought to life. And so, (laughs) 
<laughs> so in my spare time when I'm like ironing or folding laundry, I've had West Wing on in the background. <laughs> I still haven't seen that you show. You really need to watch it because it, I mean. I know. All of my friends love it. It is, of course, flawed <laughs> because many, many great things are flawed. And so, you know, West Wing right. has its flaws and that's fine. But it is also supremely excellent. <laughs> And really, <laughs> honestly, really funny. Like, as much as it is dramatic and touching and emotional, and I've definitely cried watching West Wing, and, and all of that stuff is certainly true, um, but it is the humor that surprises me every time. The show makes me laugh out loud, and so few shows do. Even comedies and sitcoms that are supposed mm -hmm. to make you laugh out loud. You yeah. know, maybe I'll, like, acknowledge the wit in them or whatever, but I won't actually laugh. West Wing makes me laugh. Um, so, yeah, you really need to get on that. It's daunting because there's so many seasons, but uh, it's really worth it. <laughs> well, I say the same thing to people about the X-Files. Mm. So, you know, I get it. Um, so... <laughs> well, I guess the, the easiest one to talk about is uh, my partner and I went to see Deadpool this past weekend, mm -hmm. which we both really enjoyed, like, a lot. Um, in, in my case, a lot more than I expected to. I mean, I actually have not read Deadpool, although I'm aware of Deadpool, and I know basically what the shtick is, quote-unquote. I've also run into Deadpool at cons, so I am very aware of Deadpool's shtick. <laughs> Um, but I actually have not read the comics themselves, but, um, my hesitation going into Deadpool was, I don't really like Ryan Reynolds. So I was kind of, and he, he was in that travesty of a Green Lantern movie and I kind of was never able to forgive him after that. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bad, you guys. It was so bad. Um, but this really works for him. It works Deadpool as a character and just really matches up so well with his sort of humor, the kind of fast-talking, you know, motor mouth. I mean, Deadpool is called the Merc with the Mouth. So I, it was very, very funny, very rated R. I mean, like, very, very, very rated R. Uh, um, so do not take young children to see it. Um, I know most other superhero movies have been rated PG-13, but this this is not uh, for very, very, very good reason. Um so, but yeah, I really enjoyed Deadpool, and then I have spent the vast majority of my time, like, binging on horror <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> um, so, I think the last time we discussed Limetown, uh, which is really, really good, and other people had suggested uh, something called the Black Tapes podcast to me, which um, is kind of in a similar vein. And initially, I didn't really listen to it because I think compared to the production quality of Limetown, I think, uh, the black tapes podcast does suffer a little bit in comparison, but once I kind of got over that and bought into the world, um, it's, it's been really good. I, I really, I really enjoy it. It's, um, very much like the X-Files meets serial and, um, I, I, in my opinion, the X-Files, which actually is that and Sailor Moon were the two formative shows of <laughs> my childhood. So I think that probably says a lot about me as a person, <laughs> but the X-Files were 
I always think of the X-Files as being an anthology show in, in much the same way the Twilight Zone was. It's a show, the best X-Files episodes are the standalones, the monsters of the week, the ones that take sort of a weird facet or fear of small town American life and literalize it. So there's this hilarious episode where Mulder and Scully go undercover as a married couple and, you know, the monster basically kills all the people that don't fit into this like perfect idea of a, you know, suburban house, like little things like that. They're really good at delving into the kind of weird quirks of American life. And then there's all the alien stuff, which is terrible. (laughs) So if you watch the X-Files, just like don't watch all the alien stuff and just kind of watch all the other episodes. It's just like an excellent anthology show. Um, So the Black Tapes podcast is somewhat similar to this. You know, the, the structure is that there is a reporter who is investigating these series of paranormal things that are happening. Um, And slowly over the course of the first season, you start to suspect that all these random paranormal cases that she's been investigating are possibly linked. And it's kind of, it's like in the background and they haven't explicitly drawn the connections for you, but it's working there and it's kind of getting bigger and bigger and creepier and creepier. And, um, I came home last night and, uh, Mark wasn't back from the hospital yet from working and I could not finish <laughs> listening to the black tapes. I was just like, he needs, he needs to be home so I can like finish this. Um, so I've been listening to that at work. Um, and then they also have a spinoff podcast called Tannis, which I only just started. Um, it's the same production company that did the black tapes and they are sort of investigating the myth of Tannis and just what exactly Tannis is. They kind of explain over the course of the show, but it's kind of this combination of the occult Sumerian mythology, um, but it endeared itself to me immediately because it started with Jack Parsons, who lived in my hometown of Pasadena, was a member of uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn, uh-huh. which was Alistair Crowley's like thing, and he was also um, an aerospace engineer. Again, I feel like all those weird interests say a lot about <laughs> me <laughs> as well. Um. But I, I, I'm really enjoying that too. So those those are kind of my big things that I'm obsessed with that I also can't listen to mm-hmm. when I'm home alone, um, which I am right now. Like I'm like kind of like I really want my partner to come back from the hospital so I can finish <laughs> listening to this episode because I'm dying to know what happens next. But I am too chicken to to listen mm-hmm. to it on my own because then I'll just I it it the thing about the horror podcasts is I do like horror, but there and but there is something about listening to yeah. a podcast that is somehow mm-hmm. scarier. I agree. It's it's I think maybe it's that it's like it's it's like in your head. Like you're not watching anything or reading anything. It's like it's voices in your head talking about these creepy things. And so it's I don't know. I I agree that it's more unsettling. Yeah, there's something about like I can there's something because the I guess the image is my own imagination conjures because it's my own brain and my own brain knows what's mm-hmm. scary to me. Those are the images I will think of as opposed to like watching mm-hmm. a movie. You know, that's 
it's watching a movie and, you know, it may or may not be scary. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Or, um, or if I read it in a book, I, I'm actually, horror for me is kind of like reading it. I don't often Mm. get scared. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll end up with like an unsettled feeling, but I don't actually get scared. I don't read a horror novel and fall asleep and freak out, but the horror podcast, definitely. It's like under my covers <laughs> with, with my little stuff, uh-huh. seal white harp. And like Mark is sitting right next to me and I'm just like listening to the podcast. That's like the only way I can deal with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, yeah, that, that's, that's what I've been reading. Uh, not reading. That's what I've been enjoying anyway. Okay, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about... Well, Kelly and I were thinking of of talking about writing mechanics. Uh, We talked about sort of behind the scenes of publishing. We've given you some, you know, NaNoWriMo-type tips and things like that. And we decided that, you know, we're going to venture into writing mechanics. So structuring your book, what makes good prose, all those sorts of writing mechanic things that you guys can put into your toolbox when you're writing your own work. So uh, we'll be kind of doing the first of that next week, um, and we'll be starting with structure, how to structure a book, how to, um, you know, kind of going into those beats that we've sort of covered on Pub Crawl before, all those types of things. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Now, I know that recently we've had some snafus with the iTunes feed because we've had to move our podcast to a different server it's now at soundcloud if you guys are part of soundcloud it would be under publishing crawl um but i just tried this today on my own phone if you actually unsubscribe from itunes and delete the podcast and then search us again uh under publishing crawl you know p-u-b parentheses l-i-s-h-i-n-g close parentheses crawl You'll find us under the new feed. If you download the most recent episode, it should reboot your feed so it comes up again in your iTunes. Now, this, I know this sounds really complicated. I'll write it all out, and I'll tweet it out tomorrow again. Um, so, But it should be back on iTunes. It should download to your phones correctly. You just need to basically resubscribe back to the old feed. But it should be up on Stitcher. Show it should be all good, and otherwise, you can of course go to soundcloud.com slash publish and crawl. Mm-hmm. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. And we do cherish all of you who have actually left us reviews. We love you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we really love the feedback. We like to know that it's useful for you guys and you're getting stuff out of it. So please, please rate and review. Mm-hmm. And also, just to let you guys know that the call for queries for us to critique is still open. Mm-hmm. It's still going, so you guys still have time to send those in for us to review. As we said, we'll pick five and remove all of the identifying information. So, but uh, in the meantime, if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website at sjjones.com. 
And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.